the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back as we head into hour two. I am Seth Liebson, and uh, boy, it's it's a heavy show today. It's been a heavy week. Um, we'll lighten it up and get heavy again in in, in a few moments. Uh, David, thanks for uh, we've not really had a chance to catch up today. We've both been so darn busy in uh, prep and other duties here. Did you do anything fun? Did you watch the president's speech last night? All fifteen minutes of it. Did you? Well, I was I was actually. Are you still dumber here. because of it? Okay. We were just done with our show, and yeah. I was uh, still here tidying up and getting ready to go out the door. And okay. I left the office not uh, long afterwards, but right. it wasn't uh, wasn't very memorable. No, right? it no. was it was memorable in its awfulness. Quite yeah. honestly, <laughs> it really was. It, I think Dana Perino had it right. She said. Um, the White House staff had for months been planning a speech on Ukraine, and it seemed like it was a Ukraine speech. Well, I noticed that, too. Yes. He kept talking about yes. how we need aid for Ukraine. Yeah. I said, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. It is actually, this the Israel speech or the Ukraine speech? I, I did a word th- uh, count, uh, a find uh, word count on the speech. Ukraine actually got more mention than Israel last night. Dana Perino's point was it was a Ukraine speech where they just sprinkled Israel over it. Um, that was her, her, her verbiage, and I thought that was pretty accurate. And the conflation of the two problems are not the same, uh, but the conflation in Joe Biden's mind uh, is what explains most of it. Uh, so, okay, fair enough. Uh, you, didn't, uh, you, didn't, you didn't hear it. I, I, I did. I watched it later. It, 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 it wasn't even well delivered, and he stuttered over the key phrases. I mean, stuttered isn't the real word because that's his excuse. Stumbled is the real word. Stumbled over the key phrases. Um, not wanting to trouble the poor with begging to paraphrase from Shakespeare. I won't beat up on him too much for his inability to speak. He said enough uh, this week and enough wrong uh, this week that whatever he did with the teleprompter and the rehearsal of this speech that evidently had been in the making for months anyway without the Israel part attached to it, he just gave us the best he co- he could, the best he could give us. Um, and it leads me to where we are with the lack of leadership and another theme that has, you know, been part of the show for the last couple of weeks, which is I remember when we won the House of Representatives in November of 2022, and we had some Republican leadership in Washington, D.C., in our federal government. It was at the House of Representatives. We had a Speaker of the House, and we had a functioning majority doing good stuff. Oh, the good old days. Yeah. And uh, it was true, as you pointed out yesterday, David, when we preliminary thought, preliminarily thought Jim Jordan wasn't going to subject himself to a third vote. You were right. He ultimately did do so this morning, as we were speaking of a little bit earlier, and uh, got less votes, fewer votes, I should say, than he did in round two or round one. Mm -hmm. Um, Listener Charles writes me, who on the left paid Matt 
gates to open this mess of a can of worms in the Congress with the dumping of Kevin McCarthy at this of all times. And who is being paid to prevent Jim Jordan from getting the speaker's position? It all seems to be part of a strategy that too conveniently satisfies the left and the Democrats once again. If Matt Gates thought McCarthy wasn't good enough, then why is opening the door for someone like Hakeem Jeffries supposed to be better? Matt Gates should be the last person who, after he and his own political activities had to fight against people that thought Trump with his accomplishments was still worse than what we have now. How is this open, vulnerable time in the Congress better than getting rid of McCarthy? Newt Gingrich is right. Matt Gates is a knucklehead, and during a time when the Republicans should be shining as the Democrats look dismal, the Gang of Eight may have given Biden the same kind of lifeline that Biden has given Iran. Tough words, but hard to disagree with those words. If you missed it, uh, those eight did put out a letter today saying if people will just rally, if the holdouts will just rally to Jim Jordan, they will... um, They will happily subject themselves and accept censure from their colleagues or being removed from the caucus. And I was thinking, my God, is this what we've come to? Um, People don't usually engage in felonious behavior or sin thinking that, well, I'll do it because the punishment will ameliorate any of the crime I'm about to commit. This is not political just malpractice. It's political malfeasance. And I think what Charles is pointing to, listener Charles is pointing to, is absolutely correct. I don't know, as no one can, what speaker we will end up with. It could be Hakeem Jeffries. But if we can't get Scalise and we can't get Jim Jordan... Do you think we're going to get someone more conservative? I don't either. David is shaking his hand. No, that's not the way it's going. And shame on that gang of eight for thinking that we might, because what has been demonstrated this week is something eminently true of the Republican Party and the conservative movement and certainly the Republican caucus and Congress, which is the conservatives are not the majority. They aren't. What did they think they were going to lead us to? What promised land did these Moseses, soy descent Moseses, think they could take us to? McCarthy was a pretty good shot, given that the caucus is obviously not, as most people know, conservative. What did they think they were going to lead us to? What kind of speakership do you think we will have? And do you think we might have one next week? Do you think we might? We I don't a chance know. for something here, and we just kind of threw it away. I mean, I do not think that uh, Jim Jordan will continue his impeachment inquiries. He will be spending the next few weeks or the next few months, depending on his position, whether he becomes the speaker or not, and that's still up in the air. He won't be spending the next two months if he has to work on an interim speaker deal uh, working on an impeachment inquiry, as he had been for the past three months of the summer. No, he'll be spending the next three months 
in backroom dealings and in smoke-filled rooms, probably literally, uh, talking about uh, his political future. Or, or, or I don't know what he'll do, but, but you make a, a point that I think is fundamentally going to be the case, which is you know, when you hold these kinds of impeachment hearings, as he was doing, um, you have to have a certain level of uh, credibility. You have to have a certain level of um, not just seriousness but respect. And he has been totally embarrassed by his caucus. He's been totally – the moral authority and respect that Jim Jordan spent a lifetime building up, not his fault, has, has been totally removed here. And that too is the job of – by dint of the job that the Republicans did to him this week because they couldn't get over themselves. But again, you know, um, as Montesquieu put it, in the spirit of the laws, whenever there's the loss of a major war because of a poorly fought and lost minor battle in that war, the real question to ask is not how was that battle lost or why was that battle lost. The real question to ask is what was the condition of the nation, what was the condition of the country, what was the condition of the institution that could have it fall over the loss of a battle? What is the condition of our party? What is the condition of our movement? I'll just ask a simple question once again, because I know not everyone in the audience agrees with me on this, and I've been getting your calls and emails on it, and you all say, and I agree, it's uncomfortable that we disagree. We often don't. We'll get through it. We will. But there's something pretty elementary and fundamentally wrong in thinking you're on the right track for the Republican Party and the conservative movement when the vast minority of that party and that movement gets what it wants only with 100 percent Democrat support. That's how you got what you want. That should have been a clue to step back, take a beat, take a moment and think, hmm, is what we're doing quite the right thing? For only eight of us think so, but 100% of the Democrats think so. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show portions of which are brought to you by our good friends at Midas Gold. Are global leaders developing solutions that promote freedom and quality of life, or are they creating problems, enforcing solutions that only benefit the elite? Midas Gold Group believes it's the latter. From draconian COVID restrictions and the decimation of small businesses, of course, changed election laws, Midas believes your finances will be next. Under the guise of protecting you, you'll get monetary expansion, national debt, reduced purchasing power, and their central bank digital currency will virtually eliminate your savings and purchasing privacy. The answer, convert a portion of your savings or IRA to physical gold and silver. Precious metals are a private currency. They've been used to store wealth throughout history. Thousands of you know and trust the veterans at Midas Gold Group, as I do, as Seb Gorka does, because they've been fighting for your financial freedom and privacy for years. Call the Midas Gold Group at 480-360-3000, 480-360-3000, or check them out online at MidasGoldGroup.com. Midas Gold Group, 
Com. Mr. Bill, it's good to have you in studio with us today. Well, hello, Seth. Good to be here with you. It's such a heavy week and such a heavy day that I wanted to try and lighten things up just a little bit. I had a great idea, a million-dollar idea. Oh, what are you still doing here? I know. I know. And I'm, in, I'm, I'm nervous to put it out over radio because someone might grab it. But if Patent I say, pending. Well, I'm if listening I say very TM, hard. Huh? I'm listening very hard. If I, if I say TM like uh, Phil Dunphy, that covers me, right? That's we, right. Pr- gets rid of all the prior art problems and all the other things. You didn't just say it. You declared it. Yeah, I'm declaring it. You declared a trademark. I declare this idea. I, you Tell me if it's not a good one. An email platform. We're going to invent a new email platform. Where you can send an email to a large group of people at your workplace, friends, civic interests, church, synagogue, whatever. A large group. And you can check a box that does not allow a reply all result. It does not allow a reply all for any of them who get it. In other words, it's sort of a precursion of a blind carbon copy. They can all see, though, that they were all on it, and they could reply to one another on an individual basis if they want, but that's what it controls. It controls that you can only reply one to another because how many times do we hate the reply all? People aren't as funny as they think, first of all. And it does anyway, I think it's a million-dollar idea, and why this hasn't been invented yet, I don't know. That is brilliant, and I would certainly use it if I could. David, do you understand the principle behind this? Do you like the idea? I will gladly accept any and all of your emails going forward sent solely to me. I don't think he quite understands what we're after here. I don't think I Well, understand. David, let's say that you've put ant bait in the kitchen and you want to let the office know. Right. But you don't want replies all of ant jokes over and over and over. Especially that they're not funny and when you're kind of busy and, you know, you work in a company with 100 people who might be doing this. Right. So you check the box. I'm notifying the office there is new ant bait in the kitchen, but you can't all reply all. I, I just feel like uh, this system will be abused. It's it's to get rid of abuse. It's to get rid of abuse. Yes. How could it be abused? Well, make a better lock, make a better thief, they yeah. say, right? Yeah, make a better mousetrap. All of the, all of the, uh, David the many jokes that Seth Liebson will send to the office and not allow us to retort in return. Well, because they're not funny in exactly the retort Exactly my point. And and so where is going to be your objective standard of funny? You can Only reply Seth to is me. funny. Yeah. Only Seth is funny. That's, that's what we're going to call this software. It's called No Reply <laughs> Email TM. And that's that. Now, we're going to have Rabbi Alushan in a little bit. And he's going to talk about his recent trip to Israel. He just got back, I believe, last night. Praise God. But yes, praise God. But also biblical portion of the Torah portion that people will read tomorrow in synagogue is the story of Noah. And when I thought of that, I thought of you because we get the idea of a rainbow in Noah. And um, you, back when you were producing my show, used to memorize long monologues, extended monologues of Tom Selleck's and Magnum P.I. And one of the ones you liked the most was his distillation on rainbows. Yes, opened, sir. And, and the episode was called Rainbows. And David will attest, David, please attest, Bill has no notes, no nothing, not even a computer or a smartphone on him. Give us the magnum monologue. He's off the grid, ladies he and gentlemen. He is off the grid and off paper and pen. Give us the monologue. I must have seen a hundred rainbows since I've been in the islands, and each one seems to take my breath away, despite the best efforts of Mr. Corkle, my eighth-grade science teacher. 
He used to lecture our class on light reflection and refraction, polarization and prisms, but I knew that's not what rainbows are all about. So when I got a C-minus on my midterm, Mr. Corkle said he was concerned I might go through life not understanding the importance of geometric optics. But I was concerned Mr. Corkle might go through life without understanding the importance of a rainbow. That's beautiful. How'd I do? When did? Well, let's find out. I let's go to the tape. I've seen a hundred rainbows since I've been in the islands, but each one just seems to take my breath away. Despite the best efforts of Mr. Corkle, my high school science teacher. High school, that's one mistake. He used to lecture our class on light reflections and refraction, polarization and prisms, but I knew, I knew that that really wasn't what rainbows were all about. So when I got a C-minus on my midterm, Mr. Corkle told me that he was really worried that I would go through life not understanding the importance of geometrical optics. But to tell you the truth, I was I a lot more worried Mr. Corkle might go through life not understanding the importance of a rainbow. I think you get an A+. Plus. I, must I think you get an A+. Plus. Close enough, and you right? haven't even looked at or thought of that probably until I screamed no, at you. It, it had been some it. years, yeah. It's been, well done, Bill. And it, yeah, if, if you don't mark me down for get it, saying geometric instead of geometrical, okay, and, uh, it's eighth grade instead of high school. Yeah, and it pretty much nailed it. You nailed it. You nailed it. Well done. Well done. Anyway, I, I don't know why we had to do that. I just wanted to because we're going to learn about rainbows in in the in too. the chapter I'm on excited Noah. Too. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll see if we have a chance to do that with Rabbi Alush coming up. But um, anyway, Bill, well done. How do you? How Thank do you. you and how do you do these memorizations? Because you have a whole bunch. Do you want to do? What's that I one s- from the magic thing you have that I didn't oh, know? Oh, the great movie, The Prestige. Yeah, do the that. Three one. parts of every great trick. Yeah. Um, I, I wish I could tell you there's a system to it. For me, there's not. Okay. People have these mnemonic ways that seem harder than just straight up memorizing. You the just text. straight up memorize. Yeah. So in in the short time we have left, it goes something like. Uh, Every great magic trick consists of three parts. The first part is called the pledge. The the magician shows you something ordinary. could be a bird or a man. Uh, Perhaps he asks you to inspect it to see that it's indeed normal, but it probably isn't. The next part is called the turn. The magician takes this ordinary something and makes it do something extraordinary. But you wouldn't clap yet. And here's where it gets a little hazy. Uh, Because making something disappear isn't enough. You have to bring it back. That's why every great trick has a third act, the hardest part, the part we call the prestige. And you have to imagine I'm Michael Caine saying that. That's interesting it's the prestige because you know another word for magic or magician. Oh, you taught me, yes. Prestidigitation. Prestige. In the word. Prestidigitator. Prestidigitation. Well done. Is that a Michael Caine movie? Yeah, he's he's in it. What's it Uh, called? Christian Bale, Hugh Jackman, The Prestige. All right, David, you and I. Christopher know Nolan directed. Can't oh, we go know what wrong we're doing yet. this weekend. I'm still waiting for you to watch Cast a Giant Shadow. I did. I watched it. You watched it. Yeah. I heard you fell asleep during it. I also did that. Oh, <laughs> I did both. We'll have to discuss the ending of that movie. Bacha Unger Sargon joining us next. We'll be right back. Well, welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. A special pleasure to welcome back someone. Been too long since she's been with us. My fault. And that's Bacha Ungar Sargon. She is the opinion editor at Newsweek. She is the author of a great and important book, Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. You can follow her on 
Twitter X at Bungar Sargon. Uh, Bacha, uh, thank you for joining us. And apologies on my email. The autocorrect didn't get the Yiddish just right. But welcome back to the <laughs> Airwaves of Phoenix. I'm sorry it's on such an occasion. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And thank you for saying that. You it's betcha. great to be here with you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been uh, on fire on the media as I've been watching you. So it's a special delight to have you uh, close, help close the week with us. I was going to ask you a series of questions, which I will get to, but as I was going to your website, uh, excuse me, your Twitter X page, uh, a new question just popped into my head, because the picture above your face is a picture of Martin Luther King marching with an entire retinue of people that are clearly of different races and different faiths. I think I recognize Rabbi Heschel in that that picture, if I'm not mistaken. that was a um, that was a moment that uh, the Jewish people marching uh, in and for and with the civil rights movement of Martin Luther King and for many many decades before that was perhaps an apex of the kind of unity that all minorities were in league with together. The past two weeks um, seem quite to be the opposite of that, and I wonder if particularly whether you want to start with Black Lives Matter or any of the other things you have been unfortunate enough to see on our college campuses, you might just want to weigh in on, in contrast to the picture that we are looking at above your face and head on Twitter. (laughs) Um, Yeah, Dr. King is one of the people that I think about um, every single day. I have his picture in my office. Um, I, I often ask myself, you know, where would he stand on this or that issue? Um, I do think, however, probably even then there was, you know, the kind of normie faction, if you will, yes. of like, you know, Rabbi Heschel and Dr. King, who believed that most people were good yes. um, and that they should appeal to the hearts and minds of the average American. And then there were the more radical factions, um, you know, you know, Malcolm X, um, the Black Panthers. Mm-hmm who, and this is going to be relevant to today's yep. situation, the Black Panthers who were invited um, as as chronicled by Tom Wolfe and Radical Chic to Leonard Bernstein's house, you know, to his little mansion apartment on the Upper West Side for a party um, because it was chic to have, you know, friends who were radical, right? Like mm-hmm. that was kind of how you signaled that you were above the average middle-class person with their average middle-class values, like, oh, I don't know, we should judge people based on the content of their character rather than the color of their skin. Um, you know, so, so even in Dr. King's day, there was this kind of um, overlay of class onto the distinction between radical and moderate, where moderate was where average middle-class people were, and being radical was, consi- was, was actually... Um, coextensive with privilege. And I think you saw a lot of that this week. Um, There was an article in The New Yorker interviewing um, these students who had signed their names or who had who had signed on to I don't think they used their names, but they were docs who had sort of signed on to um, this uh, this letter in support of Hamas Mm -hmm. and their horrific, horrific, disgusting, um, murderous, murderous rampage. And the last paragraph, which somebody excerpted on Twitter very helpfully, said, you know, that the students were, were they were like, well, we never thought this would have happened to us. We, we would have thought that we wouldn't be docs because we expected that being at Harvard, yeah. the privilege of being at Harvard yeah. would have protected us from the, these kinds of ugly ramifications right. for 
I mean, their own actions. But And the last line was something along the lines of, well, what are they going to do? They can't fire 700 Harvard students. And that's exactly the point, is that, like, in a way, you know, this is, of course, about, like, horrific abdication of moral responsibility, disgusting absence of values in these people. But it's also a question of privilege, like, that ability to be that disgustingly anti-Semitic in polite company is coextensive with a certain level of privilege. And I think there was a little bit of that in, in BLM as well, although I have to say, I'm sure if you went into the South um, and joined, you know, a black church this Sunday, last Sunday, they would have been praying for Israel. And so I think that the black leadership, the black college educated set where, you know, when they get to these privileged positions, they are encouraged to embrace that radical view to to flatter the ego and the vanity of the white people who run those places. Right. You've got that. And then on the other hand, you have just probably where most average Americans are, at least according to polling, which is they actually understand the difference between right from wrong. They understand the difference between people who cut open women who are pregnant and tear out their fetuses and the people trying to stop them. Bacha Unger. Sargon is our guest. Short segment here, longer one coming right up. You've invoked a lot of Tom Wolfe in this. This is great. Uh, Radical chic and also vanities. Let me come back on that when we do come right back. Bacha and I will be right back. Delighted to have with us, privileged to have with us uh, one of the great writers and uh, commentators and uh, cultural critics of our time, Bacha Ungar Sargon. She is the opinion editor at Newsweek, author of a very important, also Unfortunately, again, relevant book, Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. You made a reference, Bacha, to um, the party at Lenny's. I think that was the name of the original essay by Tom Wolfe, where we get radical chic, or maybe that was the subtitle now that I'm thinking about it. There's this very poignant part that Tom Wolfe talks about in that essay where the Black Panthers, where Leonard Bernstein is raising money for the Black Panthers, and Tom Wolfe realizes walking out, that all these people are raising money at a mansion in New York with dual grand pianos to raise a society where no one can have mansions or grand pianos. And <laughs> it dawns on me the relevance to the students that you were talking about at Harvard and the woke and the progressives, some of whom are in Congress, Bacha, who speak for the kind of – this has been bothering me for, for, for a long time – the progressives who speak on behalf of a socialization of society, whether it's for women's rights and LGBTQ rights, whether it's for the kinds of pluralism they stand for, will also at the same time stand for Hamas and stand for Gaza, whereas if they were to try to promote that ideology in those very places, in Gaza City as much as in Ramallah – they'd last about an hour. It's an odd thing to me. I have to tell your audience, not only is this the only show where I would have invoked Tom Wolfe and where I feel (laughs) um, not only the temptation, but actually follow the temptation to to claw back the the hidden recesses of my erudite education that I, (laughs) as a populist, have tried to hide and distance myself from. But you always one-up me when I do it. Like, I I feel free to do it, and then you've always read the book more recently than me and remember more about it. No, no, it's not true. You just remind me of the things that were locked away deep long ago and tried people tried to kick out of me. You just remind me of it. That makes you a good teacher. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, uh, it, it's amazing. I'm trying to under, like trying to explain 
to, for example, um, leftists and liberal Israelis, why it is that the left in America supports the bloodthirsty, anti-feminist, throw gays off the roof Hamas. And it's very funny. I don't know if you saw this, but George Santos, of all people, he had this great tweet today. Um, He, (laughs) you know, he's gay and um, he's he's very, very, very pro-Israel, which I I guess I hadn't quite realized, you know, quite how pro-Israel he was. And he tweeted today, um, as a gay man, I'm curious, since Hamas is unlikely to have any tall buildings left, how do they intend to execute no. gay people right. in the future? Right. Maybe LGBTQ for Palestine has an idea. Yeah, right, <laughs> right, right. right. Or, or their right. adjunct organization, Blacks for the KKK. Yeah, right. Right, right. exactly. And I, I think the point is that, you know, in, in the woke hierarchy, um, you know, so how do we define wokeness? I always use the same definition because I think it, it explains the phenomenon the best. Um, wokeness is when you take a worldview that should be based on right versus wrong, mm-hmm. good versus evil, true versus false, and you replace it with one that only recognizes the difference between oppressor and oppressed, and then you superimpose a racial binary onto that. Mm-hmm. So everybody who is a person of color is by definition oppressed and by definition virtuous. Mm-hmm. Like virtue is affiliated with powerlessness, and anybody who has power is associated or affiliated with whiteness, and they are, by definition, evil and compromised and immoral. And the, that that trumps everything else. So the racial thing and the powerlessness thing trumps, um, you know, all, even how you treat gays, although we know that the left hates women, so, you know, it's not a surprise there. But, um, you know, it, it trumps, you know, I guess, sexuality and all that yeah, other stuff. Sure. Um, so I, I, I think that that's sort of the answer is they have a mind virus. And as somebody who had it for a while, you know, it's, it's very hard to argue people out of it. Although there do seem to be many, 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 many people waking up in a way that I was forced to back in 2019 um, and realizing like, oh, my God, the left really hates the Jews. Yeah. <laughs> there are many waking up to it. But also, and I hear this from mostly non-Jews, um, frankly, uh, Bacha, that there's so much more anti-Semitism that melded itself over the past week than anyone ever could have imagined in this country. There's also yeah. that, too. There's also that. And I wonder if when you think about the kind of book you wrote, The Woke Media, and you think about where you you know um, write about and take a lot of cues from academia, uh, which you're well familiar with as well, is the responsibility more the medium or is it academia or is it a nexus? What the New York Times did this week should have put them out of business. Right. So the, pro- the, the problem is, is that the journalists have gone through academia. Okay. So the problem is, is that 95 percent of journalists are college educated. The majority have a, a graduate degree and, and universities are just steeped in wokeness. I mean, okay. there's no way around it. You To get a college degree, even in STEM, you have to take a composition class. And that composition class is taught by an English Ph.D., who has been told that, you know, critical theory, critical race theory, you know, post-colonial studies, post-modernist studies, they, they, you can't get an English PhD without doing that. And it's very hard to go into a, a, an academic career 
and take on the, I mean, you won't get your PhD if you say this is all nonsense. Yeah. And so you end up becoming a convert just for, for professional purposes. And then every 18 year old has to go through that. So that's why, you know, I mean, you know, all of these, that's where it comes from. And so imagine not only going through four years of college, but then two or three or five or six or seven years of graduate school, like just swimming in this, the graduate schools, the humanities are this, it's all just teaching wokeness it's all just power relations between different racial groups that's all they learn and so it's really like that's the problem right there and it, it, i agree with you the new york times should be out of business um they, they haven't even yet acknowledged or apologized or nothing and it's they're not going to they're going to try to act like nothing happened they and the media that followed them we can name names it's almost every major news organization which committed the same crime did they help inflame the streets in the Middle East? Did they help inflame the Iran? It's not as if they needed it, but it seemed to me that they poured some gasoline on it. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yeah. Re- real life consequences to getting the news wrong. And um, Seth, if they had waited 18 minutes, yeah. 18 yeah. minutes, right. Right. they would have known that they were you know, I mean, okay. they wanted to believe a narrative. They wanted it's, it exactly. to be true. If it's yeah. too much to ask that you take what Hamas says with a grain of salt. Right. Yeah. And you're right. They were desperate to believe it because they were desperate to get the Jews back into the position of oppressor yeah. because for 10 days they had to report on them as the victims of a horrific massacre. And that doesn't compute in the woke mind. So they were they were so desperate to believe Hamas and they just put it out there. Yeah. Well, I know you had uh, only limited time tonight because uh, you're fighting sunlight here, daylight. And, Bacha, <laughs> I just I watched what you were doing all week, and I knew if I could, I just wanted to get you on, even if for a few moments. Thank you for everything you do. Thanks for being with us this afternoon, Bacha. Thank you so much, Seth. God bless you, and God bless the United States of America and the people of Israel. Well said. Now go Benchlicht. And uh, <laughs> I'm Seth Leibson. Thank you, Bacha. Uh, we'll be Shabbat right shalom. back. Shabbat shalom. <laughs> Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show, portions of which are brought to you by the great people at Y-Refi. Y-Refi has an investment in a portfolio that's not correlated to the stock market or the Federal Reserve. Should you be concerned about stock market volatility or a possible recession, inflation? It's a portfolio where you can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you choose, and no loss of principal, no penalty if you need your money back at any time. There are no fees in this secure collateralized uh, portfolio and why refi is a due diligence approved firm where you can earn up to a 10.25% rate of return that's right a 10 and a quarter percent fixed rate of return check them out at investyrefi.com that's invest the letter y then refy.com or give them a call at 888yrefi24 888yrefi24 um, she and I were, uh, Bacha Unger Sargon and I were talking about, um, that Tom Wolf essay, Radical Chic, uh, from New York Magazine. You can get it online. Uh, um, it was, uh, originally, um, uh, called Radical Chic, That Party at Lenny's. And, um, it first appeared in 1970. It was a fundraiser that the wealthy, primarily liberal Jews of New York on Park and Fifth Avenue in Manhattan uh, were throwing um, on behalf of radical Marxists, uh, Black Panthers. And the irony that we were pointing out, that he was pointing out, and that I was talking about with Bacha, 
is that you have all these very wealthy people in this wonderfully appointed uh, masonette, I suppose it was, um, uh, of Leonard Bernstein's, Bernstein's, and they're all raising money for a Marxist cause, that is to say a, so- a society where you cannot live this way, a society that does not have these kinds of homes, a society that does not allow you to have these kinds of homes, including not only the grand pianos that are well described in this essay by Tom Wolfe, but that allows you to even produce the kind of art that people like Leonard Bernstein produced. And I was thinking of Bernstein a little bit more over the break and a line of his from West Side Story where the, um, where the gang member says, I'm um, depraved on account of I'm deprived. And this, I don't know, I guess generations-long argument that has been ever with us from the 40s onward that depravity, moral and physical and criminal, is explained by economics is simply not true. It's simply not true. Depravity is explained by depravity, by an evil heart, an evil mind, and an evil ideology. And if you don't scratch very far, you will find that ideology is explained by Marxism. Hence, the red-green axis that Zudi Jasser and I were talking about at the beginning of this show. It's as much Marxism as it is radical Islam. We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. 